Our annual fundraiser, Phonathon, is happening right now. This is the only time in the year that we ask our listeners for support to keep our station on air and commercial free. Call in to make a donation now at 847-866-WNUR or donate online at wnur.org donate. All contributions make a difference. Thanks so much. Stay tuned and head to wnur.org donate to keep us on the air. From a laboratory run by the U.S. Department of Energy to the puzzling origin of its name, Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve has an intriguing history. Here's campus and local reporter Olivia Lloyd to tell us more about it. You're at Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve, just outside Chicago in Lamont, Illinois. As you're driving around the park, you spot an unexpected building within the preserve. It's a Department of Energy laboratory that traces its roots to the Manhattan Project that produced the world's first nuclear weapons. It's called Argonne National Laboratory, and it's operated by UChicago within the Forest Preserve. Argonne National Laboratory and the current Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve, that was all acquired right after World War II, and the, uh, the lab was set up you know, at that time, and it was very common that you know, they had their workings going on in the center and they wanted a very large buffer. That's Scott Coble, an ecologist with the Forest Preserve District. He explained that the Civilian Conservation Corps worked on the land during the Great Depression. After World War II, the Department of Energy bought the land to build a new lab. Now, originally when the lab was built, you know, they did want you know, a large buffer so, you know, for security reasons. So then in the early 1970s, some of these federal surplus lands were, were deemed that they didn't need them anymore, which is basically like the Waterfall Glen, which is kind of like the donut and Argonne National Laboratory is the donut hole. They were looking for ways to transfer those to other agencies. And the Forest Preserve District was was able to acquire like over 2,200 acres of land at that time from the federal government, which now makes up the bulk of uh, of Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve. When I visited the park with my boyfriend about a month ago, we were also struck by the presence of a giant lab in the middle of an otherwise picturesque forest. Here's my boyfriend, Medill Jr., Frederick Tippett. The lab itself had a very innocuous presence, but, comma, the concept and visuals of a lab hidden in the middle of a park had much more nefarious vibes. It felt vaguely like the Department of Energy lab in Hawkins and Stranger Things, where it's just kind of like hidden in the middle of nowhere. Let me set the stage again. Once you pass by Argonne National Laboratory, you see a bunch of cars lined up along the road near the entrance to the park. You follow the signs directing you to a waterfall. I'll let Tippett tell the story. Well, the first candidate for a waterfall, which was a drop of maybe 12 inches. And my reaction there was, surely this isn't a waterfall. And I kept walking and I started to hear the noise of water. And I was like, all right, we're in business. And I came across the second one, which was, uh, it was a drop probably more of like five to seven feet. And it fit more the actual definition of a a waterfall. It's a nice area. It wasn't quite the waterfall I had been expecting, but after seeing the first tiny drop, I was like, well, at least I got something out of this trip. 
The kicker of it all is that the park isn't named after a natural feature. It was originally named Rocky Glen Forest Preserve. The park is currently named after none other than former Commissioner Seymour Bud Waterfall. Like I said, he was just you know one of our influential commissioners, and they were you know looking to honor him and you know named the preserve after him. That's right. Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve is named after Seymour Bud Waterfall. Kobel said that the practice of naming a park after a person used to be pretty common. He added that visitors of the park are sometimes confused by the origin of the name. You know, most people are just uh, intrigued in the fact that you know it's not named after the waterfall. They oftentimes act like you're pulling their leg when you tell them, "No, it's named after Commissioner," especially with the the name Seymour Bud Waterfall. The vast majority of people that you would run into down there are under the impression that it was named after the waterfall versus a person because of the nature of the name. From the CCC to a national laboratory to the unusual origin namesake, Waterfall Glen Forest Preserve is a puzzling but beautiful place. I recommend going there for its nice paths and scenery, but probably not for the quote-unquote waterfalls. For WNUR News, I'm Olivia Lloyd. Coming up, we interview one tap-dancing neuroscientist. And we'll take a look at one rising local movement to save the beavers. WNUR News will return after these messages. Stay tuned. Allison is perfect. I mean, she'd never tell you that. She's humble and perfect. She likes everyone. She even likes her untidy roommate's weird guinea pig. Allison, wait, are you texting and driving? Allison, no, that's the exact opposite of what I was just saying about you. Why, Allison? Why? Texting and driving makes good people look bad. Visit StopTechStopRex.org, brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Amnesty International is a worldwide organization dedicated to promoting human rights. Amnesty conducts letter-writing campaigns and tries to raise public awareness about capital punishment, police brutality, and torture in the United States and abroad. For more information about Amnesty International, you can check their national website at www.aiusa.org. This message brought to you by WNUR. Why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service. annual fundraiser phonathon is happening right now this is the only time in the year that we ask our listeners for support to keep our station on air and commercial free call in to make a donation now at 847-866-WNUR or donate online at wnur.org donate all contributions make a difference thanks so much stay tuned and head to wnur.org donate to keep us on the air It's often said that at Northwestern, and is in our DNA, 
Reporter Aaron Robinson gives us a look inside the mind of NU neuroscience alumnus and professional tap dancer Sterling Harris. I would say my understanding of what neuroscience is, uh, is the study of the nervous system, which is our brain, our central nervous system, and our peripheral nervous system. But what that means is essentially it's the study of, of humans, how we act, why we act, what do we do when we act? How do we feel? Um, it's, it's the study of what makes us, us. My name is Sterling Harris. I am born and raised and I currently live in Chicago, Illinois, and I am a tap dancer. I used to be obsessed with just neurons and how they communicate. Um, and I really see that same type of communication as the um, basis of essentially what I do in dance. I'm trying to communicate something about what I'm feeling or what I'm experiencing to someone else, whether it be an audience member or somebody else that is also on stage with me. It's about that human connection element. And so I'm studying what's actually going on inside of our bodies uh, in terms of connecting and making connections and, and how we um, express ourselves while also trying to exemplify that, you know, on stage or in a rehearsal. While I have always loved um, to dance um, and tap dance in specific, I also just love science. I used to always, um, science fair was my favorite time of year, especially in grade school. I just loved um, how like hands-on and personal it was to me. You know, you can observe a reaction and see like a physical change happen or you're talking about the weather and it's something you can actually go outside and experience. And that's just always fascinated me, especially like as a curious kid growing up, being able to answer some of these questions. I also had a teacher in eighth grade who was just amazing in my, in my world. His name was Mr. Pitts. Um, and he also just brought just a really strong passion for, uh, he taught chemistry. Um, but it rubbed off on me and from that moment forward, I just knew that I want to do science. Like I'm going to study science. Like when I go to college, I'm going to be a science major. <laughs> when I enrolled in Northwestern, I was going to be a chemistry major um, and I was a pre-med student. But I think it was my sophomore year, either my junior year is when the neuroscience major was created at Northwestern. And it instantly I was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. This is um, a little more interesting, even more personal, you know, to be able to have this study that is actually about humans, you know, in our brains. My interest in what I pursue in terms of like my dance career, I want to, I envision this day where I'll be able to marry the two, marry the two when it's not my dance career versus the, the neuroscience side of it. Uh, eventually I want them to be one and the same. So when I'm doing one, I'm doing the other. I think when, you know, when I think about music, it's, it's communication um, and, and it has immense opportunity or potential to communicate um, something or a feeling to someone else or between, uh, between groups of people. And it doesn't even have to involve words. And I think that's the most special part about it. It's almost like this deeper, um, more personal level of communication or connecting or relating to one another. Um, and for me personally, personally, it's, uh, it's like almost like the closest thing to magic or like a magical feeling that you could have, which is what something I really love about tap dance. We live at this intersection of 
being dancers as well as musicians at the same time. So we're using our shoes, of course, to amplify um, our sounds, but I at least hope to have my entire body dancing. My entire body is hoping to be the instrument. And so to experience that like communication, like actually physically in your body, like it's this like just amazing feeling. This piece was made by Aaron Robinson, and it is part of a larger project highlighting the connections between music and the brain. The music you heard in this piece was Upstage Rumba by Dave Brubeck, and the recording comes from a live tap performance by Sterling Harris and Case Prime. the Homeowners Association of a Glenview Housing Development, Concord at the Glen, notified residents of an impending beaver removal project. The beavers moved into the development's retention pond and built their den using wood from landscaping, leading the association to advocate for their eradication. That was just the beginning. Here's Helen Bradshaw with the story. For a pair of beavers that recently moved into a Glenview retention pond, it's been a rough few weeks. First, there was the threat of being trapped, then the accidental removal of their den, on Earth Day no less. But the beavers do have something going for them, and it's thousands of supporters like newly minted beaver advocate Rachel Siegel who are rallying for their protection. Uh, you know, I checked my Facebook around eight o'clock at night, and the next thing I knew I was creating a Facebook group and writing a press release and writing creating a flyer. So the residents were informed with a memo that the homeowners association was gonna be trapping and removing the beavers living in the retention ponds. But the ambiguous content of the memo is what led the Facebook group, Glenview Beaver Fan Club, to form. Kara had an inkling. She was wondering what kind of trap they were gonna use. And when she, so she called the homeowners association's management company and they, when they told her they were going to be using underwater traps, she knew what that meant. She just happened to know that that meant that these semi-aquatic creatures were going to be trapped and drowned. And, and it's not a fast death. I mean, it takes up to 20 minutes for them to die because they can hold their breath for that long. And they're not trying to gnaw their way out of um, the cage the whole time. Somebody told us that the Field Museum has a huge collection of beautiful beavers that they could display, but they can't because the teeth are all broken because of how they were caught. And according to curator of mammals at the Field Museum, Dr. Larry Haney, that's entirely possible, just not in recent history. The only ones that we that that come into the museum these days are from, you know, state wildlife agencies, from rehab centers where the animals have died, um, you know, things of that sort. We don't we don't go out and deliberately catch them ourselves. Uh, but but that was done in the past, um, distant past at this point. So um, I don't know specifically that we have specimens that have damaged incisors from chewing on metal traps that they were caught in. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. So if these lethal underwater traps are an outdated method by museum standards, what are the alternatives? Environmental journalist and author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, Ben Goldfarb, says that there are plenty of alternatives, and they could actually be economically beneficial for the Homeowners Association. Every year, 
we don't know how many beavers are killed for causing flooding issues or cutting down trees uh, nationwide, but there's no question that many tens, uh, if not hundreds of thousands are killed every year. Uh, the methods vary, you know, there are these underwater traps that you're describing. Uh, there are kind of bear traps, which basically crush the beavers. So there are different techniques uh, for taking out beavers. Uh, but, you know, I think that the, the point to me uh, is that in many cases where we're currently managing beavers lethally, you know, we could be using non-lethal uh, conflict avoidance solutions uh, like these, you know, flow devices, these contraptions often called beaver deceivers, which are sort of pipe and fence systems uh, that basically lower the level of the pond. Uh, you know, if the beaver is cutting down somebody's Apple trees, you know, you can wrap the tree in, in wire fencing uh, and prevent prevent damage that way. So there are lots of different ways to live with beavers uh, that I think are, are more ecologically sensible uh, and, you know, certainly more humane than our knee-jerk, lethal, uh, reflexive approach to, to management. And there have been studies basically showing that, you know, every dollar that you spend on one of these flow devices returns $8 in savings, right? Because you're you're saving on the cost of a trapper because you don't have to trap anymore and you're saving on the cost of, of damages. But unfortunately for the beavers, lethal trapping methods are still incredibly common. In 2015 in Illinois, 95% of trapped beavers were killed instead of relocated. The thing is, this isn't just dangerous for the beavers. It's dangerous for the entire ecosystem, including us. Yeah, they're, you know, they're doing all kinds of, of really, really valuable ecological work. Uh, you know, of course, beaver ponds are, you know, they're, they're filtering out pollution, right? So, you know, they're, they're basically creating these kind of landscape scale kidneys that, uh, you know, are, are capturing lots of nitrogen and phosphorus and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, they're also, um, you know, they're creating wonderful habitat. They play a really important role in flood mitigation uh, in the in the Midwest, you know, because these big pulses of, of stormwater, you know, come racing downhill uh, and hit a, you know, hit a beaver pond and spread out or get sunk into the ground or captured in the pond. The good news is that beavers are on the rebound, but there are still potentially hundreds of millions of fewer beavers in the United States today than there were before trapping began a few centuries ago. As for the Glenview beavers, there is hope. While the beavers might be damless for now, the Homeowners Association has postponed beaver removal plans. And according to Dr. Haney, the two beavers at the retention pond could be contributing to the growth of the beaver population soon. More likely though, it's a, a, a pair. And if there are only two being sighted at this point, that probably means that either they haven't had babies yet or they're you know, still in the dam. Although the idea of more beavers might be unappealing to the Homeowners Association, Goldfarb says stopping tree destruction is a simple fix, and the benefits of the beavers are worth much more. So even if beavers aren't providing incredibly valuable ecological services in this little stormwater pond, you know, their offspring might, or the, the offspring of their offspring might, if they're allowed to reproduce, right? We need to, we need to grow beaver populations, and if we just reflexively kill them every time they cause problems, we're never going to accomplish that. For WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. When WNUR News returns, we'll take one last look at the weather for tonight. Stay tuned.
Three tours driving Humvees in Afghanistan. Twelve years flying choppers. When my sister came back from her last tour in Afghanistan, she didn't want to talk about it, but she knew I was there to listen. Sometimes my husband still has difficult memories. They can be overwhelming. With the Veterans Crisis Line, I know where to turn when we need support. I made the call and got support for my sister. The Veterans Crisis Line is here for all veterans and their loved ones. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press... Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person, and if you're a book person too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Do you need to travel for medical reasons but don't have the money? Are you an abused mother who needs to escape to the protection of family? Angel Flight believes nobody should be denied medical care or other help because they can't afford to travel. Angel Flight has volunteer pilots standing by to help those in need. Contact Angel Flight to see if they can help you. Call toll-free 1-877-621-7177 or go to angelflight.org. This message brought to you by Angel Flight and WNUR. This is a guided meditation on parenting. Take a deep breath in and let go of the time you and your son played basketball and you attempted to slam dunk. Or when you hit that pinata into your neighbor's yard. Let it go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Allison is perfect. I mean, she'd never tell you that. She's humble and perfect. She likes everyone. She even likes her untidy roommate's weird guinea pig. Allison, wait, are you texting and driving? Allison, no. That's the exact opposite of what I was just saying about you. Why, Allison? Why? Texting and driving makes good people look bad. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Now, for one last look at the weather, it's currently 58 degrees and cloudy at O'Hare Airport. And right here at the WNUR studio in Evanston, it's 59 and cloudy. Tonight, you can look forward to a low of 48 degrees. Tomorrow, it'll be cloudy with a 43% chance of rain, with a high of 58 degrees and a low of 38 degrees. Once again, our annual fundraiser phonathon is happening right now. This is the only time in the year that we ask our listeners for support to keep our station on air and commercial free. Call in to make a donation now at 847-866-WNUR or donate online at wnur.org slash donate. All contributions make a difference. Thanks so much. Stay tuned and head to wnur.org slash donate to keep us on the air. That's all for the Zach McLeary, reporters Olivia Wood, Aaron Robinson, and Helen Bradshaw, 
Now, back to scheduled programming.